Are you ready to be better? Not tomorrow, not by the end of COVID, but right now. Thank you so much for tuning in to Figure It Out with James Money and Cal Maxwell. People have got to be better and it starts right here. It is time to tackle life's toughest questions. On this week's episode, we interview Christina Maxwell, who shares a powerful story of grief and how she was able to overcome it. You are listening live, ladies and gentlemen, to probably a few days ago to the Figure It Out podcast with James Imani and myself, Cal Maxwell. We are back in Cary, North Carolina this week. It's good to be back, James. The Washington football team. That is just weird. Yep. I mean, I'll have to say. You, that could be a be better segment, honestly. Mm-hmm. Got to be better about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll address that at another point. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, we got a great show planned for you today. Got a great interview coming up. Uh, we really don't want to beat around the bush today. We're going to get straight into it. So, James, what's going on with our bottom shelf briefing today? Yeah, guys, uh, we're going to have to take a break for this week. Um, last night, we we slammed face and shredded some eight balls. Wow. Yes, we, uh, you know, I got to say, first off, James pulled off a little bit of a surprise party for me. It was my 23rd birthday. Um, and I would never tell him this to his face, but he's. I couldn't ask for a better best friend, and I love that guy to death. So thank you for um, putting that party on. It was phenomenal. It was great to just see so many good friends this weekend and just have a great weekend. But we did slam some face. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just going to kind of take her easy today. Yeah. Um, so we will be back with that next episode, though. Um, but we do want to get into a question that somebody submitted to us. This is not going to be our need of the day or anything today. But it is, I think, an important topic, wouldn't you say, James? A lot of couples struggle with I, it. I think so, and so it's something we wanted to just address real quickly on the show. So this is from Caroline in Chapel Hill. She says, question for your nude of the day. I've got a nude of the day topic for you. A little repetitive right there, but that's okay. She says, what if I want my boyfriend to make out with me, but I also don't want him to touch me? What do I do? Don't read into this I'm asking for a friend. It's, it's funny you should mention that, and I won't get too in-depth with names or this experience, but I have a buddy that had that problem, but the opposite way. Um, okay. Too much grabbing, and they didn't want to. Okay. But I don't want to read yeah. into that much, but back to this problem. Jeez, um, I, I don't you know. know. I think the most important thing is just be respectful, mm-hmm. right? And just... Make sure you guys are on the same page mm-hmm. from the get-go. That way there's no gray area. There's no confusion. Start slow, and it definitely will ramp up. Yeah. But be patient. Please be patient, Padawan. Yeah. Gosh. Master Jedi. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, so thank you, Caroline, for that just riveting question. And um, please please keep us updated on your situation. <laughs> yes, please. Please do keep us updated. Guys, continue to send us your nudes of the day, as in your questions where we get vulnerable about those to our Instagram page at figured out underscore podcast. We love hearing from you guys. Caroline, thank you so much for your question. Keep us updated and just use your best judgment. Yeah. So thank you. Mm-hmm. But let's just go ahead and dive into our interview today, James. Um, the interview today is Christina Maxwell, who is my sister. She's a phenomenal human being. You guys are going to hear some of that today in the interview, but we got a lot of great feedback on our last show about spirit and grief and suffering. So we wanted to kind of continue that trend and dive into an interview where Christina talks about a period of grief in her life, what that looked like, how she was able to overcome it, and 
how that has strengthened and shaped her to this day. So let's just get into it. And I mean, you're not going to find a more distinguished or well-polished woman. So. Gosh, she was America's distinguished young woman, I think is the correct title, mm-hmm. when she was in high school. Kind of a big deal. She's also, she's hanging a national anthem in a Mets game recently. Killed it. Absolutely killed it. You were it. there. Yep. You were working in New York that mm-hmm. summer. Didn't add anything crazy to it. Sang it how it was supposed to be sang. Loved yeah, it. It was beautiful. And I hate baseball, so that was the best part of the night. <laughs> really glad you, mm-hmm. you were there for that. She, yeah. she appreciated that. She's very talented all around, um, but she's going to talk about some work that she has done in the community that has just been profoundly impactful. So let's get into it. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and taking some time out of your busy schedule to join us. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's so much fun to be on here. I know. I'm really excited to have you, and I appreciate you being such a big supporter of our podcast. Um, and obviously, you know, as mom and dad's favorite child, um, I'm just really excited to be able to showcase some of your talents as well in this. So we're looking forward to it. And you were referring uh, to me as the favorite, correct? Uh, that's, well, we can talk about that later. Anyways, we are really excited to have you on here, and we've kind of been, um, as you listened to our last show, and for those listeners that listened to our last show, we talked a lot about grief um, and and things like that and what that looks like in our life. Um, And so you have, I believe, a beautiful story uh, about grief and kind of how that has shaped and transformed your life. Um, So you are currently the manager at Highline 9. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and then also the uh, nonprofit you work with on the side, Rip Rap? Sure. So I, my career kind of took a totally unexpected 180 um, during COVID of all times. And in March, I became the manager of Highline 9, which is this gorgeous group of nine art galleries and exhibition spaces in Chelsea, New York, right under the High Line. And it's owned by Related Companies, which is a, a large real estate group here in the city um, and throughout the country. And so I'm in charge of all programming and operations and PR and marketing. So it's been a really, really fun um, deep dive into fine art and real estate and law, which is all pretty new for me. So uh, that's my main job right now. But through really, gosh, over like the last, I guess, four years, um, three you know years plus a little bit of change, I've worked with Rip Rap, which is an amazing nonprofit here in New York City. And basically, they have people in all of the hospitals here in the city who identify patients who a lot, the majority of them come from low income neighborhoods, but who basically have amazing, you know, art programming and support and therapy when they're in the hospital for treatment, you know, whether it's chemo or radiation. But then when they go home, because their immune systems are so shot, they're isolated in their home and they're not able to go to school. They're not able to go outside and play or see friends. And so they pick these patients and families and I get connected to certain patients and then I go into their home. Um, It used to be on a weekly basis and I bring, obviously, you know, we're not doing it in person right now with COVID, but I bring arts and crafts and music and sometimes just sitting together and telling stories or listening Um, whatever that patient needs. But it's been an amazing, amazing cornerstone of my work and my heart here in New York City. Yeah, that's awesome. And so if I remember correctly, you also did something similar in college. Is that right? Yeah. So I went to University of Michigan, go blue. 
and studied musical theater and writing. And I was going into my junior year and performance is a very self-focused uh, art form as it, as it has to be when you're training. However, I felt like I was spending so much time thinking about myself and not serving. And Cal, you know, our Cal and I's parents really have have drilled into us from an early age the importance of serving and of being a light mm-hmm. in your community and doing it in a way that only you can do and no one else can. And so I was sort of searching for my niche for that. And I ended up like running. I never run, but for some reason decided to try running that day. One of four runs I've probably ever done. And ran by the children's hospital um, that was there on campus in Michigan. And I saw a little boy who had lost his hair. He was in a hospital gown. The worker, the hospital worker was pushing him in a wheelchair through the Rose Garden. And he just had his eyes closed and was like turning his face up towards the sun. And it was one of those moments that, you know, I was just lucky that I was looking up at that moment. And it kind of it took my breath away and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I finally was like, you know, God, if I'm supposed to do something about this, I need, you know, you know, to let me know what I'm supposed to do. And I, I went for another run later and saw a different child in the same place. And I finally just contacted the children's hospital and said, here's who I am. Here's what I saw. You know, I'm a performer. I have a heart for children. And I, for some reason, feel drawn to the children's hospital. What, what can I do? And we came up with this amazing idea. Um, we called it Music at Mott. It's the name of the children's hospital. And I would bring in musical theater performers every Friday to sing and act and play with the patients and also with their siblings. Um, and the program is, is still ongoing at Michigan, which is a beautiful thing. So that's where I fell in love with it. And I, you know, I remember one day I called our parents after a particularly tough but beautiful session with a patient. And I said, you know, even if I'm on Broadway one day, I will not ever do better work um, or more important work than what I'm doing now. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And I love that point of like, I think oftentimes we can get wrapped up in our careers and things like that. But the fact that you took that initiative to, to do something like that says a lot about your character um, and, and things like that. That's awesome. So now you've had uh, multiple, multiple patients that you've worked with, um, but there's one in particular that kind of stands out, I think, is the story of Mariah. Um, and although I never met Mariah personally, um, she impacted my life profoundly through you. Um, and so tell us about that story and kind of how that impacted your life. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, it's so hard to answer that question because I feel like I could talk for four days solid about Mariah and about her family and about how that broke me and built me, um, all in the same, the same moment. Um, but Mariah, um, was when I met her, she was still three and, or she had just turned four and, I um I met her family. She was my first patient actually in New York City with this nonprofit. And she was this firecracker of a child from the Bronx. And I mean, she was so sassy. You know, like I remember at one point when she was her very sickest, um, her grandma she was staying at her grandmother's, and she said, Go get me some Takis, which are like these spicy Cheeto things. And she wasn't allowed to eat those at that time. So her grandmother said, you know, Mariah, you know, you can't have those. And she said, you go stand out in the hall until I tell you come back in. And so her grandmother like went and stood in the hall and waited until she was allowed to come back in. I mean, she's just a force. Um, but so I, Mariah had neuroblastoma. Um, and it's a very, very aggressive form of leukemia. 
And when I met her, she had just been diagnosed. And I will never forget the first time going to see her. I was immensely uncomfortable, not with the work um, or like, you know, meeting a patient who was so sick because I was used to that. But I just, I think it's important to talk about things in this moment in our country too. I'm a white, mm-hmm. white, petite Southern girl. And yeah, I- And athletic as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like that's irrelevant, but thank you so <laughs> much for your thoughts. Um, and I went to where their home in the Bronx and I walked from, you know, the train to their home, which is like a 25 minute walk, like the only white girl for miles. And I'll never forget. I was wearing like a pink, like sundress and carrying like this big purple tutu and tiara that I had brought to give to Mariah when I first met her. And I was like, I am out of my comfort zone. And um, it's so funny because, you know, now when I go back, to their neighborhood, I have people, you know, leaning out of the buildings and saying, Hey sis, how you doing? And I, I know everyone in the neighborhood. It's like my second home. Um, mm-hmm. but I will never forget that first walk to that neighborhood and just being like, all right, this is, you know, somewhere different for me. This is a new experience. And I didn't know that that apartment would be where some of the most significant moments of my life, not only to this point, but I think ever would happen. Um, and that I would gain what's continued to be a family. Um, and I, I worked with Mariah doing arts and crafts and music um, until she passed away um, before her fifth birthday. And I, you know, walking with her, walking with a child through the end of their life, um, knowing what's coming and not sure how much they know walking with her two siblings who I adore, Chris and Amaya, and her unbelievably strong, amazing parents, um, Lulu and Greg. I, I mean, it taught me more about myself, about life, um, and about our purpose on earth than anything else ever has. And, you know, sitting and, and talking with her siblings about what was going to happen and now, you know, over a year later, almost, you know, like two, almost two years later, or yeah, two years later now, um, you know, I, I still, they're still family. We all go to dinner together. And, you know, the other day, uh, Mariah's older sister, Amaya, FaceTimed me because she was, you know, a little sad. And we all get sad about the people we've lost and loved. And I sat in the park here and talked to her on FaceTime, you know, for an hour and, it became a a huge part of my life that I never could have foreseen at that moment. Yeah. Well, that's, that is a special story for sure. And you talked about how it kind of broke and built you at the same time. Kind of talk to us a little bit about what that like grieving process looks like for you, how long that took and what all you took away from that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, first it's, it's sort of weird to explain. I don't know that I've ever in my life loved another human being as much as I loved Um, and still love Mariah. Um, We just, it was like we were two souls that were meant to meet. And, you know, yes, I encouraged her and lifted her up and tried to build her up, but she did the same for me. I mean, I will, I will never forget. um, I came back, I came to see her one day and this, she was really, really sick and her bones were super fragile. And she had all the lights off in her room and she wouldn't let anyone in to talk to her, but she asked for me to come see her. 
And I was allowed to come in, but I had to sit on the floor. She said, you could sit there, but sit on the floor and don't say anything. And so she was talking um, about how like much she hated her family. You know, it was just, she was in so much pain that she was, mm-hmm. you know, saying things she didn't mean. And I told her, you know, it's okay to lash out at the people we love sometimes. You know, sometimes we do that when we're sad or we're angry. And I said, you know, I do that when I'm sad. And she was like, well, when have you ever been sad? And I said, well, I had an audition for a big Broadway show I really wanted the other day. And I found out from my manager later that the director told my manager that I had nowhere near the skill level I would ever need to be successful on Broadway. And she was like so tired, she couldn't move. And she shot up and she said, you tell that stupid director to come over here, I'm going to smack him in the face. And then she laid like her tiny, fragile hand on my hand and said, Christina, it's okay. You can be on my Broadway. And a child like that, I mean, you just love in a way I can't express. And, you know, it became evident after a few months what was going to happen um, Mm -hmm. inevitably. And so that journey was... I started a big GoFundMe page. We raised over $10,000 um, basically to make the end of Mariah's life magical. You know, she went to see Frozen on Broadway and the Frozen team sent her this unbelievable package. And, um, you know, I I remember when she was getting close to the end, I remember there was a moment when her siblings, you know, realized what was happening and I and what was going to happen. And I went in, you know, to their room with them away from Mariah, obviously. And the three of us talked about the reality that she might not get better um, and how we would always honor her and what incredible brother and sister they had been, um, you know, and how much life she had lived in only four years. And I remember sitting on one of their like twin beds, the three of us just like holding each other and crying. And when she passed away, um, you know, I really helped organize all of the funeral and the burial at Woodlawn Cemetery, a beautiful cemetery near their their place in the Bronx. And, you know, I will never forget in the write-up they did after she passed. And at the funeral home, everybody referred to me as Mariah's big sis. Um, And I still, you know call myself that, um, as far as Mariah and her mom and I would always talk about, you know, how she was her most beautiful and her most strong at the end, you know, and at that point Mm -hmm. she'd lost all of her hair. She was maybe half of what she weighed before, but there was something just tragically, but sacredly beautiful about her. And there was a light in her eyes that was something bigger than, than what's on this earth. And I remember when she passed, just the grief was unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I remember it would be, it would be, it was months before I could see a child her age and not have to leave the area. Like I would see, you know, a four-year-old riding a bike or something. And I would, all I could think about was that she would never learn to ride a bike and I, I couldn't be around it. Um, but somewhere along that, you know, and someone gave me this advice when she, when she passed was that grief never goes away. The weight of it is always the same, but the weight shifts 
And I think when she first Mm. passed, the weight was suffocating. Like I couldn't breathe and I couldn't think. Um, And then at some point it shifted to a grounding weight, like a weight that was like an anchor. Um, Because I knew if I had walked through that with her, that I could do anything. Um, And I remember you know, maybe six or seven months after that, I was looking in the mirror one day getting ready. And I was just like, God, Christina, you're so stupid. You messed up that audition or something, you know, just talking to myself in a way I shouldn't have, as we all do sometimes. And I heard her voice like clear as day say, do not talk to my Christina that way. And, (laughs) you know, for me, it's letting the grief shift so that now Mariah is the reason I work with these five other patients who I love and adore. You know, she's the reason that sometimes I wear a bright dress instead of like black and white. She, you know, makes me braver. Um, and, and I think that that's the turning point that we all hope for, um, in grief. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. Um, I love that point about letting the taking the grief from being a crushing weight to being an anchoring weight, Um, And I think too, like you said, when we go through those kind of things in our lives, then we really realize we can do just about anything when we turn that corner. Um, That's great. So what exactly do you think it was um, that maybe helped you turn that corner? Gosh, you know, I mean, the most basic thing is time, you know, time passing, um, talking about her continuing to see her family, like having her family, like being able to hold on to each other through that was massive. and I remember the first time I went to see them after she had passed, they gave me a gift and they were so excited. And it was a pair of bright orange Nike sneakers. And they were the same sneakers she wore to every hospital appointment because she loved them. Um, and I, at that time, was going through some really bad health issues myself and ended up being hospitalized um, with a very rare blood issue. And I was really sick. And I was also starring in a show that was an incredible opportunity, but a very heavy, heavy role. And I remember just throwing myself into my work and letting the grief like fuel the work and like the acting I did in that show. And I will never forget like one of my first performances in that production. Um, I, I looked out at the front row and on the front row was Mariah's mom and dad and my mom and dad, um, all sitting next to each other. And to me, moments like that, you know, we're like, we, we take this grief and we move forward. Um, my, my faith was huge in that as well. I remember I was furious at God. I, I get angry at God all the time. And I think at least in my faith, I, I think that's important. God can take it. And I, I, you know, didn't understand how I could serve a God who would allow that to happen to a child. He didn't make it happen, but he did not intervene. He didn't stop it. And it took me a long time to sort of like rectify that in my faith and to say, this is horrific and I'll never understand until I'm like the, on the other side of this life, why God allowed it to happen. But what I do know is, um, is that I would not trade the minutes I had with her and the things she taught me and the things that her love taught me and the things that her death taught me for anything 
And I would not trade being part of her family for anything or the patients who I've been able to love and uplift and walk with because of that for anything. And I think um, sometimes things, you know, I talk about things breaking us and building us and her death like shattered me into a million pieces. And I remember there were so many moments where I would have to just step off the street and like sob somewhere and like in public and before I could pull myself together. But I think um, when you're broken into a million pieces by something like that, like down to your core, more can get in and more can get out. You know, so the things that you see, you pay more attention to, you know, you're more moved by people's loss and grief. You're more understanding and patient of people who are struggling with addiction because had that happened to my child or my sister, I don't know how I would have dealt with the grief. Um, And it also, for me, I had so much that she taught me. And when I was broken wide open like that, there was room for all of it to come out. And it was like, I couldn't help but share, you know, her love and her infectious joy and her sass and her no BS attitude um, and just her hunger for adventure and, and life. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is, yeah, that's an, an, just an unbelievable story. Um, And it, it is tough to listen to, but there's so many great, pieces that you gave there. I love that when you're broken into a million pieces, it allows room for things to come in, but also go out as well. I think that's, that's just incredible. Um, And I just love the way that you, you know, just serve so selflessly and despite your busyness in New York and all that hustle and bustle, and I could never live there. I don't know how you do it, but the fact (laughs) that you still find time to, to be a part of of Rip Rap and make an impact like that in the Bronx is just incredible. Um, So that's exactly what we, we look for on this show. And we love to tell stories like that and hear stories like that. So that is phenomenal. Um, On a lighter note, any funny memory that comes to mind when you think of me when we were kids? Oh gosh. So many. Um, The first was like you always had a character phase you were going through. So you were like a fireman for a while. um, And you were like, you know, my favorite was when you were Tarzan and you would just wear a loincloth and like mom and dad had to make you put on underwear under it. And then our grandmother, Queen Jean, like just unreal, iconic. She's got to be on this show at some point. But anyway, I remember one time she and I were on a hike and we found a, like a turkey wing under an outhouse, like a giant like wing from a turkey with like feathers on it. And she's like, I'm going to make Cal a headdress because you were like obsessed with Native American culture. And, um, you know, we're part Cherokee and you were like, I'm 100% Cherokee. And um, so Jean and I like made you a headdress and she made you like a full, like legit Cherokee outfit. Like, and you had like a tomahawk, everything. and. Um, I will never forget, like you came, mom brought you to one of like my parent teacher conferences in elementary school and you like fully like descended down the hallway in your entire getup and you like had your chin held high all like three feet of you. And you were just like, I am the chief. Um, so that was like, that was definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, those were, those were good times. I love the, uh, and just to be, just to, to clear things up. The Tarzan phase was years and years ago with the underwear. I do wear underwear now, just as a disclaimer. Um, yeah, but that, that was yeah, back a lot, in lot of, 21. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, no, a lot of great memories there. But Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this yeah. was an incredible interview. Um, we're gonna feature Rip Rap as our next charity of the month, where we encourage our Yay. listeners to donate five dollars um, to that charity. So again, thank you so much. You gave us some great tips. I know our listeners are gonna love it. Um, love you, miss you, and hopefully I'll get to see you soon. Love you too. I'm really proud of you guys and. Your podcasts are helping me try to be better and, and figure it out. So I think it's it's a journey we can all help each other on. Gosh, I love figuring it out. Thank you so much, Tina. Love you, and we'll talk soon. Love you too. Bye. That is just such a, a powerful interview from Christina. James, any thoughts on that real quick? I love her. Yeah, okay. That's, that is my sister, so just keep that in mind when you're talking to me. Right. She's great, though. She is good. Um, I really look up to her. She's somebody that I admire more than anybody in this world. I love her to death. I would never tell her that, but um, that's how I, I feel. I'm just kidding. I do tell her that all the time. Um, but, guys, like we mentioned, or we were talking about in the interview there, Rip Rap is going to be our charity of the month. Look out um, on our Instagram page at figureitout underscore podcast on how you can get connected with them, plugged in, and donate that $5 to them. Um, James, any thoughts kind of on what's coming up or what all's going on? Yeah. One, I was just going to say that $5, that's like a, like a sack of fingerling potatoes. Um, in a couple weeks to come, we have things like sponsorships coming. So mm-hmm. be on the lookout for that. And also merchandising efforts have ramped up. Wow. So it's getting pretty serious. Yeah. It? Run with that. We won't say anything else. We won't spill the beans, but yeah. That's, that's awesome. And we will be off next week for some vacation time, but we'll be back in two weeks. And guys, if you have seen either a picture of us on Instagram lately or just seen us in person, you may notice James's beard. And you may think because of the beard that he's a hairy guy, but shaved. We love you. We're thinking about you guys. We're praying for you. We're all trying to figure it out. And we'll see you in two weeks.